couple of years back, I was sitting in on a discussion of the Karaniya Metta Sutta, one of the ones that you chant. And it starts out by saying, this is what should be done by someone who aims at a state of peace. Hand in the back of the room. I thought there were no shoulds in Buddhism. <laughs> and the poor teacher spent the whole morning explaining why there were shoulds in Buddhism. Um, this is in contrast to the fact that the Buddha said the teacher's main duty is to give you a sense of what should and should not be done. Not so much to tell you that, but to give you the basis for making that decision, for believing that the decision really is valid. Um, so, where is the disconnect? Part of it has to do, I think, with the sense that a lot of Buddhists, or a lot of people coming to Buddhism in the West, really don't feel comfortable with the idea of right view. Um, for various reasons. Um, sometimes you see it translated as harmonious view or wholesome view. But the idea that there is a right and a wrong rubs some people the wrong way. There might be several reasons for this. Some people don't see the need for it, especially if they've been trained in a mindfulness technique that says basically mindfulness is simply being aware of whatever comes up without having to do anything, not reacting, not passing any judgment. In which case, there's no need for a right and a wrong. It's a technique that has no, that doesn't require any views. Another is this is fear of dogmatism, the idea that we've been scarred by dogmatic views in the past. We don't want to take on any more views of that sort here in the present moment. You see this in all kinds of places. It's even in the in your in your chanting book, at the end of the Karanimeta Sutta, where it says, "Not holding to fixed views." The word "fixed" doesn't appear in the Pali. And it doesn't even say holding, it's basically not arriving at views, which means basically the teaching is not to arrive at right view, right view is a path. There were some teachings in the past that said, you know, you arrive at right view and then you're, then you're saved. Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, that's okay, you've arrived. Whereas the Buddha said, no, the view is not the point at which you arrive. Your views are the things that get you to act. So you have to look at what are the views that you carry, carry in. But that's one reason why some people feel they don't like the idea of a right view because they're afraid of dogmatism. Another is you read in the passages where they say that you shouldn't cling to views. It's okay, well that's easy enough. I just won't, I won't have any views, won't cling. But it doesn't work. And the final reason is you sometimes see in the teachings on um, Inconstancy are used to say that, well, because everything is inconstant, that means that the Dharma is going to be inconstant as well, impermanent as well. There are going to be changes in the Dharma. What the Buddha taught does not necessarily apply to us. And we should be more free to decide what we want to do based on our present circumstances. I've seen one instance of this where someone was saying, you know, the image of the raft that takes you across the river. You're saying, the Buddha tells you that you should take a raft across the river, but he doesn't give you any guidance on how to make the raft. And I was thinking, you know, there are seven volumes in the Vinaya, and the four Nagayas are about 16 volumes. All of them are raft instructions. You know? <laughs> um, but the idea that the teaching on impermanence would trump everything else, that is a very pre prevalent teaching. 
comes down to the sense that you know, we feel that we're in a position where we would like to pick and choose, take what we like, take what we don't like, and then we can find some justification in the Dharma for using the teaching on impermanence to cut away everything else. Now, this, these are tendencies we see around us, which contrasts very strongly with what the Buddha had to teach, what he said on the topic of views. First, there is your views determine how you act. And the path is a path of action. The Noble Eightfold Path is a kind of action. Mindfulness itself is a kind of action. When the Buddha taught mindfulness, it wasn't just being aware of what comes and goes. He says you, you are mindful of the fact that if something unskillful is there in the mind, you should get rid of it. If something skillful is not yet there, you should give rise to it. Once you've given rise to it, you want to make sure it doesn't pass away. So it's not just watching things arising and passing away. It's making some things arise, preventing some things from passing away. So there's a definite activity that you're doing there. And whenever there's an activity, you have to talk to yourself about why you're doing it what the and wh whether you're getting the, the good results. This is an aspect of what the Buddha says in Dependent Core Rising. This is the first thing that comes either after ignorance or after knowledge. Coming after ignorance, you talk to yourself in the wrong way. Tell yourself all the wrong things about what you should be doing and what's, what counts as a good action, a worthwhile action. When you approach the path with knowledge, okay, you're going to create actions, you're going to talk to yourself in a way that tells you the right things to do and gives you a good set of standards for deciding was that action in line with the path that's going to lead to the end of suffering. So we are on a path of action and actions do require views. Now for the problem for most of us is that our views are kind of half-formed and don't always necessarily fit together. You might think of the image of a grab bag. And in the grab bag, there are a lot of Lego bits. Now, some of the Lego bits we've put together and made into fragments of a building. And other Lego bits are just kind of scattered around. And for a lot of us, that's what our views are like. Some of them are coherent, and they work together. And others are just going off in different directions. And when we decide we're going to make an action, we, we reach into our grab bag, we pull out something. Now, it may be consistent, may not be consistent, but if you're going to follow a path of action, you want to have a consistent set of views that keep you on the path. This is why right view is such an important part of the path. Otherwise, our actions go out this way. It's kind of like Brownian motion. You know, the, the, the description of dust motes in the air. They go here, they go there, they go up, they go down, they move around. There's no consistent path. You don't see them marching across the room to an, in, into a <laughs> to a goal. And a lot of our lives are like that. They go here, they go there, they kind of go around, back and forth. Um, and what we need is a set of consistent views on action and the power of action that will help us get to, an, get to the goal of putting, really putting an end to suffering. And that's precisely what right view is on the path. When the Buddha talks about right view, there are basically two levels. There's what he calls mundane right view, and then there's transcendent. Mundane right view is the principle that your actions have results. And when you do something with skillful intentions, there are going to be good results. You can do something with unskillful intentions, there are going to be bad results. The Buddha said this was one of his categorical teachings, was that skillful actions should be developed, unskillful actions should be abandoned. That's the first level of right view. So it's a review about action. And also carries over into the view on, on, on rebirth that the results of your actions don't just come in this particular lifetime. They can come in 
can go from lifetime to lifetime further down. Now some people say, that how can we be expected to know this? Well, the Buddha says, this is a view, it's not something you know. It's a, a working hypothesis that you take on. Simply the fact that, you know, do you really act? Is, are you really acting based on your intentions, or is it some god acting through you, or is it the stars acting through you? There's nobody who can really prove this. But if you're going to make up your mind, I want to practice a path that leads to the end of, end of suffering, you have to assume that your decisions are going to be important that they really do make a difference. And if you stick with those decisions, they will make a more consistent difference. So it's a working hypothesis that you assume. The test that the Buddha gave, you may you know in the Kalama Sutta where he says, you know, when I adopt these views, what happens as a result? That's the test. It's not that you see for yourself that yes, you're, you really do have power over your actions and your actions really will lead to the end of suffering. You don't know that. But you know that if you adopt that as a view, you're more likely to act in skillful ways. Which is one of the reasons why the Buddha recommends us. Um, years back, you probably know the these clubs that people form sometimes where they say, okay, let's assume that I am, we're going to live just for one year and at the end of the year we're going to die. How are we going to live our lives in a different way? And people get together once a week and they talk about their decisions about what's important in life, what's not important in life, the things they decide to let go, the things they decide to develop, realizing, okay, death is imminent, imminent. Um, and, it's a, and it's a useful exercise. And I was giving a talk one time and I proposed that you might try the same thing with rebirth. Say, live one year as if you really believed in rebirth. Well, how would you live differently? And then a year later, I went back. Nobody had formed the club. <laughs> but one person told me about why he really resisted the idea. He said he realized I'd have to live a better life. <laughs> Which is proof right there. So we, we, accept, we take on these views not so much because we know that they're true. It's similar with the Four Noble Truths, which is the transcendent level of right view. The Buddha says well, the reason we suffer is because of our own craving. Now again, do we know that? Because we can see a lot of the ways in which people are suffering because of actions that other people do. Situations in society, specific decisions that other people are making are making you suffer. I mean, you can give, you can create a really good case for that. But the Buddha is saying the, reason, the real reason you're suffering is something that you're doing. People out there can be really miserable in their actions, but you don't have to suffer from them. That's the proposal he's giving. Now again, we don't know this for sure, but we can take it on as a working hypothesis. If you act on this belief, how would you change your actions? And this is one of the reasons why we meditate. You realize, okay, the, the things I am doing that give rise to suffering come from within the mind because I don't know what I'm doing. I better look more carefully into my mind. So again, it's a working hypothesis that allows you to follow the path and tries to keep you consistently on the path. So these are the two main forms of right view that the Buddha teaches. One is that there are skillful actions and the skillfulness is determined by the skillfulness of your intention. There are unskillful actions that can lead to long-term suffering if your intentions are unskillful. That's the mundane level. And then there's the Four Noble Truths, which is there, there is suffering. What is the suffering? It's clinging. He gives, you know, he gives, the Buddha gives a series of 
definitions, not just so much definitions, but examples. Birth, aging, illness, and death or suffering, not getting what you want, having to be with what you don't like, not being with things you do like, things we all know. And then he says five clinging aggregates. And you say, wait, wait a minute. What are these aggregates? What, what is clinging? The aggregates are activities that the mind engages in. The clinging is that you hold on to these actions, you feed on them. And so he has you look at that process of feeding. We'll go into this more in detail tomorrow about the aggregates and what's involved there. But again, it's the activity of the mind feeding on particular ways of acting. Now for most of us, feeding is pretty pleasurable. And to be told that the way we feed on things is our cause of suffering, that goes against the grain. But the Buddha is saying, if you really look at it, I was reading recently a, a book called Across Arctic America. It was written by Knut Rasmussen. He was a Danish um, Inuit anthropologist way back in the beginning of the 20th century. And he took a he and several other Inuit people took a dog sled ride across northern Canada and across Alaska. And there, he was interviewing the shamans and other people in the various tribes. And they kept saying how much suffering there was just in getting food on, well, they didn't have a table, but getting food to eat. You know, it's in the middle of the harshest winter. You have to go out and you have to find something. You have to kill it. So it's hard to go out there and then you have to do this horrible thing. Why? This is a lot of what feeding is. It forces you to put you in a situation where you have to do things that you really would rather not do. Now we live in a society right now where all you have to do is go down to the down to the store, and people have done all the work for you. And we tend to miss the fact that how really miserable it can be simply having to get food in your mouth it would put you in a position where you were really forced many times against your will to things you don't want to do. And that's just physical feeding. Then there's mental feeding. The need we have, say, for particular kinds of relationships, the needs we have for a particular kinds of position in society, the things we have to do to get those things, and sometimes it can be pretty miserable. And the Buddha said, there's another way of engaging in life where you don't have to feed. In the meantime, you feed on the path, you feed on the practice of virtue, concentration, discernment. These things can get you in a position where you ultimately don't have to feed. That's what the message of the Four Noble Truths is. And we don't know if it's true yet, right? But it sounds good, so we take it on. But the Buddha has you, wants you to know that, be very clear of the fact that these are views that you assume, they are hypotheses that you assume. You don't know for sure until you gain awakening that it really, it really works. Dhammajikya was of an elephant hunter. The story goes that this man came to see the Buddha one time and came back and told a friend, you know, that Buddha, he's really awakened. And the man said, how do you know? And he said, well, I saw him dealing with people. People come to refute his teachings, and even before they've opened their mouth, he's converted them. <laughs> and he said, it's like an elephant hunter going into the forest. And you see these big elephant footprints, you know, this is the, these are the footprints of a big elephant. Buddha's really worth seeing. And so the second friend says, well, I would like to see him someday. And so he, he goes and sees the Buddha, and he tells what the first friend told him. And the Buddha said, no, that's not the right use of the elephant foot, footprint image. I'll, I'll teach you the right use. 
He says an elephant hunter wants to find a big bull elephant because he's got some work that a big bull elephant, only a big bull elephant can do. He goes into the forest. He sees some big footprints. Now, because he's an experienced hunter, he doesn't come to the conclusion immediately that this must be a big bull elephant. Why is that? Because there are dwarf females with big feet. <laughs> and we'll get in. We'll we'll talk about the female side sometime. But at any rate, um, but because the footprints look good, promising, he follows them. He follows them. He sees scratch marks up in the trees. But still, even then, he doesn't come to the conclusion that this must be a big bull elephant. Why is that? Because there are tall females with tusks. Sometimes they will cut the trees. But it looks promising, so he follows it. He finally gets to a clearing. There is a big bull elephant in the clearing. That's when he knows he's got the big bull elephant. He sees it directly. In the same way, when you're practicing, when you get the mind into right concentration, those are like footprints. When you develop various psychic powers, those are scratch marks in the trees. It's when you gain your first taste of awakening, that's when you see the big bull elephant. Now, a lot of us haven't even found the footprints yet. But what we hear about the elephant, there, there's an elephant in that forest, it sounds promising, you take on, on right view. And the Buddha says, it is a gamble. The idea that you are responsible for your actions, that you have the choice of deciding one course of action rather than another one. And that the way you train your mind can get you to a point where you are no longer creating suffering for yourself in spite of yourself. You can actually get to a point where you reach a point where you no longer have to feed, there is no suffering. You don't know these things for sure, but if they sound promising to you, you take them on. And it says for two reasons. One is the one, in, one of which I already pointed out to you, which is that if you take on these assumptions, they lead you to do more skillful things. If you feel you're responsible for your actions, you'll be more careful about how you act. If you feel, I can't control myself, it's just some force acting through me. I was reading a report one time, this one woman who was at a Vipassana retreat in Massachusetts, and she suddenly found that she was really lusting after this young man sitting in front of her. And it got so bad she couldn't sit in the same room with him, so she went back to her room. And as she meditated, she came up to the conclusion, this was not her own personal lust, this was cosmic lust flowing through her. <laughs> Which, I know that's abandoning responsibility. <laughs> so, the Buddha is asking her, take responsibility for your mind states. And if you take responsibility for them, you are more likely to act in skillful ways. That's one reason that he gives for adopting right view. The second one is, is there are certain assumptions you can make that human beings cannot do this. Human beings cannot achieve a formless state. Human beings cannot reach the end of, the end of suffering. If you adopt that view, you're cutting yourself off. You're, you're preventing the possibility. Whereas if you leave the possibility open, you're not sure if maybe you're going to get there or not, but at least you've left the possibility open. You haven't closed the door on yourself out of ignorance. So those are the two reasons the Buddha gives for, as he says, you're making a gamble, it's a, but he says it's a safe bet. It's better than taking the other side. This is one of the reasons why he didn't go around forcing right view on people. Because again, it's up to each of us to decide, do you want to take the, do you want to take the gamble? Does this sound like a promising path? One where you are accepting responsibility for your suffering, you are respecting responsibility for the fact that you can put an end to it. 
So you can't force people to take the gamble, but if you decide for yourself that this is something you want to do, you do it. Now in the course of the practice, the Buddha says, right view is something you do have to hold on to. The image he gives is this a snake. He actually gives quite a few images. But one of them is you've got a snake. You want to get the venom out of the snake for whatever purpose you do. He says, no, there's a right way and there's a wrong way of grasping the snake. And if you grasp the snake by the tail, it's going to come back and bite you. But if you take a forked stick and you put it right, in, in right behind the, this is the snake's head, then as you grab hold of the snake, it can writhe around you, but it's not going to bite you. And you can get the, you can get the venom out of the snake and then you can let it go. Now most of us say, mm, I don't even want to touch the snake. But the Buddha said, if, you, if there's a use for the venom, you want to, you learn how to grasp it properly. In the same way, the Buddha has many images for holding on to right view until it's performed its purpose, then you let it go. One of the images of a series of relay chariots. You're going from one city to another city, and it's not that you're going to take every chariot all the way. You take one chariot until it served its purpose, then you let it go, and then you take the next chariot and it served its purpose, you let it go. And view is one of the chariots. You need the right view in order to get yourself to remember, okay, I have to be careful about my actions. What I do, what I say, what I think, I've got to pay careful attention here. You don't take the attitude, remember Lucy and Peanuts? She said, if you go around watching what you say all the time, you never get much said. <laughs> and I've had people say, you know, if I had to watch you know, my intentions and my actions all the time, I, I wouldn't have time to watch anything else. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is what you're responsible for. So you take the attitude, okay, my actions are important. That's going to keep you on the path. This is why we have right view. And you, if you have a, the view that you know what is skillful and what is unskillful, and you hold to it consistently, that helps you to act in a way that will lead to consistent results. Otherwise, you do something, and then you turn around and you destroy it. So to be consistently on the path, you want to hold consistently to right view as you're working hypothesis. Let's see what else I've got here. So you look at these various reasons that many people have for not liking the idea of right view. One is if mindfulness actually is an action. You remember to do what is skillful. You remember to hold in mind the principles of right view, so you apply them. This is what the Buddha calls appropriate attention. When you take the framework of right view and then you apply it to your daily acts. And this is one of the reasons why we need mindfulness to do that. The Buddha never taught bare attention. He taught what he called appropriate or inappropriate attention. Inappropriate attention is when you bring the wrong framework. Such as, it doesn't matter what I do, my actions don't have any consequences. Or the law of karma works on some days and not on other days. It's like, you know, those signs you have on the side of the street, no parking on Tuesday, you know, 4.30 to 6. But any other time you can park. A lot of us think of the law of karma like that. The times, there are times when you want the law of karma to be acting, and other times you say, no, 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 no. <laughs> But the Buddha said, you've got to think of it consistently, if you want to be consistently developing the path. 
Otherwise, you work on it for a while and then you let it go. It's like watering a tree for a while and then you stop watering it. The tree dies. And then you have to come back and you have to plant it again. And then you forget to water it and then you have to come back and plant it again. I mean, the way to do it is you plant the tree and then you consistently water it. You keep at it. This is what mindfulness is all about. Remember, I've got to keep at this consistently. And that's what... As for the question of holding dogmatically to the views, again, you remember you're t you're taking a gamble, so you're not going to be out there and preaching on the on the side of the street that everybody has to hold the right view. This is your personal decision that you're going to take these hypotheses on, and you're going to learn how to cling to them in the right way. You know, given that image of the of the raft, the Buddha does give instructions on how you construct the raft. I think it's, an, it's, a, it's one of those images that bears a lot of contemplation. There's not a nirvana boat that's going to come over and pick you up and take you back. That's Vajrayana and Mahayana. Okay? Theravada is, okay, you have to make a raft. <laughs> and you, you make it out of the twigs and sticks and everything you've got. In other words, it's something you put together. The mind fabricates. The Buddha says there are three kinds of fabrication. There's bodily fabrication, fabrication, which is your breath. Verbal fabrication, the way you talk to yourself. Mental fabrication, the perceptions you hold in mind and the feelings that you focus on. And these fabricate your experience. These fabricate your emotions. They fabricate your worldview. And these are the things that we put together to make the path. In other words, we learn how to breathe properly. We learn how to talk to ourselves properly, which is basically what right view is all about. You talk to yourself, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to do this. Why are you going to do this? Well, I'm going to do this for this purpose. There's that conversation going on in the mind all the time. And if it's misinformed, it's going to lead you to do wrong things. But if you've got it rightly informed, okay, so keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Your mind's wanted, oh, come back, come back. Does it feel good? Yeah, it feels good. Okay, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. That kind of talk. So we take that, which is in, that's what the mind's doing all the time anyhow, and we, we put it, make it part of the path. As for our perceptions, the perception, okay, this is something I can do. This is something that a human being can do. I'm a human being. I can do this. Those are the, that's the kind of perception you hold. And so you take these fabrications, you know, these images you have in your mind, the conversation you have in your mind, and you actually make them part of the path. And then you hold on to them consistently. They take you to the other side. Once you've got to the other side, you can let them go. Because you've found something that doesn't need to be fabricated anymore. But you're starting with just what you've already got in your mind. And given the fact that one of the things you notice when you're sitting down to concentrate is your mind is chattering an awful lot. And the Buddha doesn't say, oh, just stop chattering. He says, okay, chatter about good things. Chatter about your breath. Chatter about how you're going to get the mind to stay with there. You use the things that the mind is already doing and you can turn them into the path. That's what right view is for. You do this in a consistent way and it can consistently get you across. And as for the question of you know the teaching on impermanence, that with the Dharma it, it means one thing in one era and another thing in another era. You have to remember the Buddha, when the Buddha taught right view, he didn't start with impermanence. This is a huge misunderstanding. I mentioned it earlier in the Q&A. He started with Four Noble Truths. In other words, there is suffering, 
there's something you're doing that's causing suffering. There's a way, way to cease suffering, and there's a path of action that you can take there. That's his, that's, those are the basic principles of the teaching. Now, within that context, each of those four truths has a duty. The duty with regard to suffering is to comprehend it. In other words, you understand it so thoroughly that you have no more greed, passion, aversion around it. The du duty with regard to the cause of suffering is you abandon it. You see yourself doing it, you stop. The duty with regard to cessation of suffering is something that you want to realize, and you do that by developing the path. So you start with a series of duties. Again, this is why you need right view to remind you this is what you do. Now, within that set of duties, the Buddha brings in the teaching on the three characteristics of impermanence or inconstancy, stress and not-self, to develop dispassion for the suffering and to develop so that you can comprehend it, and to develop dispassion for the cause of suffering so you can let it go. Those teachings have a purpose within the context of the Four Noble Truths. But the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said, are true. They will never not be true. There are certain things that don't change. And so within that context, you, you learn how to apply the other teachings so that they are appropriate. And right view is one of the things the Buddha says, you try to develop it, you try to nurture it. You've got the tree, okay, keep watering it, keep watering it, keep watering it, can't stick with it consistently. And so instead of thinking about fixed views, you say consistent views. Sounds better. But that's what, you're, that's what you hold on to it for. Now eventually, as the Forest of Johns will agree on this one, that you eventually let go of it, but in the meantime you hold on. But can't just clone awakening. It's like getting out on the raft in the middle of the river and say, look, I'm not holding on. You fall off. It's something you actually have to do. You have to hold on there. And other people can say, hey, I'm letting go. Why are you holding on? You say, well, I know what I'm doing. So this is why we have right view, because there are wrong views out there. The views that say, it doesn't matter what you do, or the views that say, you are just a, you are just a result of the physical processes going on, you have no real control over what you're doing. Some neuroscientists like to tell us that. That you know, your cells are making the decisions and you're just kind of riding on top of them. And that's a wrong view. Or the idea that say you, you want to have you want to be free of views. It, it is true that there are certain issues where the Buddha did not take a stance on things because he said it would lead you off the path. But there was one issue that he said you've got to take a stance, and that's what's skillful and what's not. This gets back to the teacher's primary duty, which is to give you a basis for deciding what should be done, what should not be done. So there are cases where you say, okay, I don't need to have a view on this, but there are areas where what is skillful, what should I do, what should I not do? You have to be in a position where you're making those decisions, because you're making those decisions all the time anyhow. The question is, do you want to do them consistently, lead to a path, make them into a path that takes you someplace, or just want to continue being a dust mote, wandering around and letting yourself be influ influenced by things outside of your control? That's the choice. So I've run out of things to say. <laughs> Do you have any questions?
So, um, thank you for the talk. Um, my question has to do with uh, making the right choice. Uh, for a for lo long time, I um, was making wrong choices and suffering in the night. And so, I had a teacher tell me, you know, I came to him and said, I'm making these wrong choices and I can't stop, I'm having a hard time. And he said, response, he said, well, if you're not hurting anybody, you're not hurting yourself, it's okay, continue to respond to make your own choices. And by him not judging me for that, I was slowly able to start making the right choices. So, well, he already, gave you, he already gave you a principle for right choices. Don't harm yourself, don't harm other people. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I guess my, in my mind, like, when I first got into the Buddhist path, in this culture, I was, I was thought like when I fall off the path of the Dharma, there's a punisher who punishes me for making the wrong choices. But by him telling me that I'm not being judged, go ahead and make the wrong choices. I didn't, so when I, when I am unskillful, I don't beat myself up. Mm -hmm. I guess there's a question in there somewhere. Well, the question is, um, what, it, what role does guilt play in the path? And then guilt plays no role at all. And we, we carry around a lot of guilt in our culture. And learning how not to have feelings of guilt, that's that helps you get on the path. But then you can recognize, because instead of thinking of the punisher out there, that puts you in the position of deciding, is this going to harm anybody, is this not going to harm anybody? And that puts you in charge. Um, when I was staying with the John Fuang, one of the scary parts of being with him was that he was able to read people's minds. And I, there were certain parts of my mind I did not want him to read. <laughs> and so I was very careful, especially thoughts about sex. Um, and then this lasted for about two years, and finally I broke down one night, and I just couldn't think about anything else for quite a while. And it, the, the ping-pong game that was going on in my mind was... Yeah, I really like this. But oh no, he's gosh, she's going to read this. It's going to be horrible tomorrow. But I really like this, and I went back and forth. And so the next morning, I decided I've got to avoid him. <laughs> now it was hard to avoid him because I was his attendant. <laughs> and one of my jobs after the meal was to wipe down his porch, and so I would wait. If if I had something, he would come back from his meal, have a cup of tea on his porch, and then go into his room. And if there was something I wanted to talk to him about, I would go up and talk to him while he was having his cup of tea. And if I had nothing to talk to him about, I would wait till he'd finished his tea and went into his room. Then I would clean his porch. So I decided I'll wait until he goes into his room. Well, he had a cup of tea. And another cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got tired of tea, and then he pulled a book off the shelf, which he never did. <laughs> and I finally figured, okay, he's not going to kill me. I went up and... I had, you know, I was, I was really dreading what he was going to say. And he turned to me and said, you know, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Which was perfect. Mm -hmm. No guilt, just wasted time. So watch out for, you know, leftovers from our Judeo-Christian background that can get in the way. Yes. Mm -hmm. <coughs> So I can see the idea that enlightenment is possible for 
for a human in this lifetime. But it seems that the inexorable weight of the law of karma weighs heavily on that possibility emerging in this lifetime. <laughs> and a lot of that karma is unknowing, especially with the mind, you know, that hasn't really developed or practiced a lot of deep meditation. <laughs> so in the process of trying to reach this place, which again, um, I can see this possible, how do you how do you course through the mass of karma that, that's like coming at you from unskillful past actions? Okay. Um, think of the story of Angulimala, who killed lots and lots of people, but was able to gain awakening. You can tell yourself, well, I haven't killed a lot of people. <laughs> now, what you do have is you have thoughts coming into the mind, then you have to learn how to deal with them. And the Buddha says the best way of dealing that with that is learn to develop two abilities, one of which is learn to train your mind so it's not overcome by pleasure, and learn to train it so it's not overcome by pain. That's what we do with the concentration. And one of the ways that you work up to that is that you develop goodwill for everybody in an unlimited way. So you work on the skills that are going to be needed so that when bad karma comes to you, you're not overwhelmed by it. Because not everything in the present moment is, is determined by your past karma. The choices you're making right now do, have, do play a huge role in whether you're going to suffer from your past karma or not. So instead of focusing on how much bad karma you've done in the past, say, I do have the, I do have the choice right now to do something skillful, given the range of choices that are being presented to me by my past karma. And constantly focus on your present karma. And don't, take, don't make the past karma your main focus. Yes? I just have a question, maybe. Um, in line with that one, I work as a hospice nurse, and um, uh, there seems to be a lot of people who have regrets over actions that they've done, and they're really close to dying mm -hmm. within weeks, mm -hmm. often. And, um, you know, what would your, like, you know, some, I often move into the loving kindness part, um, but what would you, like, you know, in terms of, like, Suggestions that you would offer somebody close to dying who is regretting that their dad in their will told them to give money to somebody and they didn't do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or um, uh, a woman who, who she would, her husband would have chest pain and she would always go to the ER with him, but he, he never had any problems. But the time she doesn't go to the ER, he dies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so things like, things like that. Okay, well, in the case of the second one, you say, let, yeah, you never know. I mean, it was, wasn't intentional. No, the other one was intentional. And that's, you have to deal with a little bit more in a different way. You said, look, that's something you cannot go back and undo right now. Now, it depends on whether the person believes in rebirth or not. If they believe in rebirth, you say, well, make up your mind, never going to do that again. And if they don't believe in rebirth, say, look, you, you've got to look after your mind right now. And that has to, you just have to let that go. And say, focus instead on the good things that you've done. People are a lot easier to deal with if they believe in rebirth as they approach the end. Because they say, in other words, you start. You're not just saying, you know, the time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and then it's then it's nothing. You're saying, well, I'm preparing for what's going to be next. 
and they can actually see some purpose in developing the mind and working on developing good mental states. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's it was mundane right view and transcendental right view. Transcendent right view, yeah. Transcendent in the sense that it takes you out of the world. Takes you out of the process of coming back and being reborn. That's what's transcendent about it. And that can happen? Well, well, you develop the right view that leads in that direction. It's not going to just... No, it's more you, you adopt this right view and you start acting on it and you can, it, contain, it can take you to a, a mental state that is outside of the world. And this is, this is the right view, i.e. The, the Four Noble Truths, this is the right view that will take you there. If you're coming tomorrow, we'll talk about how that happens. I just have another question. It sounded like when you were talking about the aggregates, you were saying that form is an activity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to constantly create your sense of this is the shape of my body. Hmm. <laughs> 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 well, have you never noticed? When you're sitting there reading a book, are you conscious of the shape of your body? No. It could it could become kind of like a fog, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, an ant comes and bites you on the toe, mm -hmm. and then it, then it then you're more conscious of the shape of the body again. Mm -hmm. There's a mental activity that goes into creating that sense of form, mm -hmm. keeping it up. I have to explain that. Yeah, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Yes. A friend and I were having a conversation recently, um, and he made the point that if you have a craving that doesn't hurt you or anyone else to indulge, mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes the most effective way to, to get it to leave is to indulge it. It's like saying someone's coming up to say, "Okay, let, okay let's go, let's go shoot somebody." And the best way to get rid of that person, okay, let's go shoot him. <laughs> now, if the, the craving doesn't, really, again, the question, does the craving not hurt you? There, there's levels of hurt. And if you say, you know, if it's a craving for ice cream, go ahead and have the ice cream, okay? But look out for the times when you say, um, let, let, just for the time being, let, let, let me look at this craving. And the best way to understand it is to say, let's say no and see what happens. What, what are the voices that are going to come up in the mind that object? And you say, I'm letting myself be ruled by these voices. Do I want to be ruled by these voices? To really understand craving is like building a dam across a river. You don't really know the river until you've tried to build a dam across it. And you see, it's, you see it getting swept away, swept away, swept away. Okay, there's, there's more to the river than I thought.
so, so try, you know, try, try saying no sometimes if you really want to know these things. The other, I mean, this is one of the tricks that they play. Is they say, you know, you're going to give to me and give in to me anyhow. Why don't we just get it over with right now? <laughs> Make it easy for both of us. And you say, well, okay, I don't know for five minutes down the line, but I do know for right now I'm going to say no. And then five minutes later, I'm still going to say no. Because otherwise, one craving leads to another, leads to another, and they, you know, they, they've got you. They know that you, that you're just a pushover. teaching the Bay Area last month, and my host, as he picked me up at the airport, he says, I have a recording of the worst Dharma talk ever. <laughs> and it was about this guy saying, you know, you, they say, you know, that this path that we follow is like, it's like the road to the Grand Canyon, the path is, the road to the Grand Canyon is one thing, the Grand Canyon is something else, but I've never found it's like that. It's more like the path that goes around one of those sacred monuments in Asia, you just keep going around and around and around, and it doesn't matter that you're not going anywhere because it's a nice sacred path. And, <laughs> and then he got into this calculus for pleasure and pain. He said, you know, think of pleasure and pain on a scale from minus 10 to plus 10. And suppose you're, you're sitting and meditating and you have an itch, and, you know, it's a minus one. But if you sit there and you tell yourself, I'm not going to move while I meditate, you turn it into a minus six, that's stupid. <laughs> and it's as if all we're concerned about is the amount of pleasure or pain we create for ourselves in the, in, the, in the present moment. There's nothing about developing good qualities of mind. There's nothing about, you know, lesser happiness leading, you know, getting in the way of a greater happiness. So, but you have to look into that. He said, okay, if I give into this, what are going to be the consequences down the line? And it is good to be able to learn how to say no and learn, to be, learn how to be effective about it. But in your way, you, you have to learn the hard way. You have to walk five miles. <laughs> so the next time you have a craving for carrot cake, remember, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> yes. So, <clears throat> what came up for me in meditation today is uh, an extreme restlessness. Uh, and it's in, sometimes that happens for me when I sit, is, is I just want to run. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and. Sometimes it's really, really hard to sit with it. 
I don't know, I guess, what are your suggestions about facing into the hindrance of, of restlessness? Severe. Okay, in a case like this, you ask yourself, to what extent am I putting this together? To what extent am I putting this together, and what am I putting it together out of? And then you divide it up, and okay, what's the physical component here, what's the mental component? And the mind, the mind has this way of stitching together sensations in the body to make them, turn them into a pattern of energy, pattern of tension, pattern of, you know, frustration or whatever. Can I take those apart? I mean, really good at stitching things together. I mean, you probably learned this when you were a little kid. If you make yourself sick, your mother's going to believe you that you don't have to go to school, right? <laughs> and we've learned how to make ourselves sick. And so you, you create a pattern of, of energy in the body that makes you feel restless. Can you cut it? And there are going to be some perceptions that go along with it, and there's going to be some feelings that go along with it. Cut, 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 cut. And then there's going to be that the conversation. So I'm, you know, this this is my this is the feeling. I've got to, you know, I've got to run. I've got to get up and just, I just you know, this is getting uncontrollable. Cut, 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 cut. Take it apart. I mean, this is one of the ways in which your defilements you know, squeeze your nerves, as they say in Thai. Mm -hmm. They create these sensations in the body, and, and then you can't then you can't resist. But they can create them, you can uncreate them. Yes? What you said tonight, in my own experience, I can see the importance of developing steadfastness and following the path. Do you recommend a Buddhist technique to help develop that quality? your motivation. Just learn how to talk to yourself and give yourself pep talks that this is really worth it. Think about what the rewards are going to be. Find what ways that help you motivate yourself. This is, this is what right effort is all about. There's the, the phrase they have in Pali is, is translated literally as generating desire or giving birth to desire. It's basically pep, pep talks to yourself. When I was translating a Dharma talks from Thai in English, I noticed that you know, the John's talks tend to be 80% pep talks. Which get kind of boring after a while when you read them in books, but they're things that they're really good for you to do to yourself. Really praises our parents, the mother and father, and um, how you relate to them. Mm -hmm. So, what, how would you relate to a situation when you have completely different views mm -hmm. of your parents and you know sort of your path and you want to, they, your parents, right, so you want to respect them, but you cannot really. Follow and they don't agree with you. Well, the Buddha doesn't say follow your parents. 
You respect them. In other words, you look after their material well-being. And if you can induce them to be more generous and more virtuous, you try that. But don't let them dictate your beliefs. Don't let them dictate your, your path if you feel that it's wrong. I just believe when I put, uh, when I kind of push, mm -hmm. oh, you know, when I just put a boundary, at some point I feel that it's disrespect. No, 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 no. Boundaries are one thing, respect is something else. And you, you show gratitude. But again, if your parents, I mean, and the Buddha had a lot of cases like this with his, with his students, that the parents all had wrong views. <laughs> and so he said, look, you can't follow their views. But that's not showing lack of gratitude. He doesn't say respect, he says show gratitude. They're two different things. Yeah. Hmm. I think about that. We, we were on a plane today, and the little kid, I don't know how many families had little kids today. There were a lot. <laughs> and who was, you know, who was in charge of the family? It's the little kids, you know. Like I'm thinking, God, I'm, I, I did that to my mother. I did. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, you, you respect them for the fact that they gave you life, and then, but then you don't. Well, you're, grat you're grateful for the fact they gave you life, but then the respect—that's that's a different issue. If you have to use circumlocutions like that, something's wrong. If you can't pick up the fact there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. I mean, the word, the word right and wrong are very clear in the Pali. Um, and it's, it's learning how to deal with that. I mean, there are certain, certain people who have certain personality disorders that, don't, that cannot deal with right and wrong. But hey, we want to be a little bit more mature than that. And the, the, the basis for right and wrong is not something arbitrary. The Buddha says it's like, you know, trying to get milk out of a cow. There are right ways and wrong ways of getting a milk out of a cow. <laughs> you twist the horn, you're not going to get milk. You know? The cow's probably going to kick you. But if you don't do anything at all, you're not going to get the milk. I mean, you see this all too often. People say, gee, I made an effort in my practice and I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I just learned how to relax and accept. And then I was fine. That's like saying, okay, I've been twisting the cow's horn for years now. Finally, I've learned how to stop twisting the cow's horn. Okay. But you still don't get any milk, you know. <laughs> so if you can think of right and, right and wrong in that way, what works and what doesn't work, that's what it means. Question over here. Yes. Hi. I was curious about the technique that guides us in mm -hmm. um, breathing in with the full body, with mm -hmm. the full body, and breathing out with the whole body. And uh, is that technique uh, associated? I know, I think there's a, a, something in the Pali about that mm -hmm. being a, a technique towards a certain purpose. Um, For getting the mind into concentration. 
It's one of the factors. Okay. Well, if you can get if you can get the mind in a state where it gives rise to a sense of pleasure, it gives rise to a sense of fullness. It's a lot easier to stick with the path. The more you can do it, the better. And also, it's you know, when the mind is still like that and has a sense of well-being, itself, it tends to be able to observe itself more clearly because you get more and more sensitive to the ways in which your thoughts are having an impact on the body and the ways in which they're having an impact on the mind. And this is when you begin to see, oh yeah, this kind of thought really does increase the stress. Because you're getting more and more sensitive to the level of pleasure that you can create so that when you you become kind of a pleasure junkie. And then you begin to notice, okay, when my mind thinks in this way, I'm destroying the pleasure I had. Yeah, it helps you. It helps you get more sensitive to the ways in which you're creating stress for yourself that you didn't realize before. And there are no extraneous factors in the path. In fact, right concentration was the first factor the Buddha discovered. Well, as I said, a John Fuin could read minds. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's scary enough. <laughs> I could talk for another, the rest of the 15 minutes about a John Lee's spirit and his psychic powers. We could spend a whole night. I think just maintaining inner calm would be a spiritual power. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my take. <laughs> you ask my opinion. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. It's gosh. This this would be a long topic too. But um, you know, the Theravada places a lot of emphasis on what you have to do with it. The, the reason you're suffering is because of your own lack of skill. And nobody can save anybody else. Nobody can make somebody else skillful. A teacher can show you, okay, this is the way it's done, but the teacher can't develop your skill. You, that's something you're going to have to do for yourself. That's the big difference. If you're going to find awakening, the Buddha can't do it for you. He's, he's set out the path. He said, this is how it's done. But then it's up to you to look at your own actions and develop your own capabilities. You don't see the Mahayana 
There's some of that in there, but then there's also the element of the, you know the the bodhisattva coming to save you, or the the bodhisattva coming to help you. It's extreme in the Vajrayana. I mean, they, you have to you have to get them to come down and give you their wisdom and give you their 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 knowledge and power. Other forms of Mahayana, it's not quite that blatant, but it's there. I mean, their image of the Buddha gaining awakening was that he, you know, he did certain practices and then they said, okay, now you're good enough, now we're going to give you awakening. That's the big difference. Is that it for the night? Mm -hmm. I mean, irrelevant questions are welcome. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, it really struck me when you said um, that the Buddha talked about kind of using all the factors of the mind, the mind talks, talk about mm -hmm. you know, things that help on the path. So I think something that I've, I've often gotten caught up in is when I'm meditating, I just kind of feel like someone, a person meditating, and I thought maybe that was supposed to be eliminated. But just sitting here with you, I just thought, all right, this is, you know, that's a good thing to be doing. That's enough. It's mm -hmm. special. And I felt like it was less suffering. So is that the kind of, you know, just let yeah. your mind be your mind? Right. And, and it's, your, your mind is going to be doing your mind things, but do them in a way that gets you to practice. And if they, you need a little bit of encouragement, say, yeah, I'm a meditator. Okay, I'm going to sit here. I'm a good meditator. I'm going to sit here longer. And then there'll be other times when you can I care less, I'm just more and more interested just in the breath and of itself or whatever. I mean, use whatever you need to use. I mean, there's sometimes like the question about using the mantra, that's, in some, that's considered a very basic meditation technique. You only repeat a word to yourself. There are times when after many years of practice, you've got to just go back and do that again. So don't be embarrassed about being a meditator, you know. If you, if that, you need that in order to encourage yourself. I mean, it's being a monk. It's, you know, now that we go around telling ourselves, hey, I am, aren't I great? I'm, just, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, I'm a monk. But every now and then, John Fung said, you know, if you're thinking things that monks should not think, just remind yourself, okay, I'm a monk. <laughs> here's, the, here's the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so I'm curious if you could provide some insight into this um, in this idea of God. So when one has found it useful to cling to right view, they've, they've established certain kind of confidence in the benefits that it brings. Mm -hmm. And when that confidence is used in confrontation with, maybe not so much confrontation, but in disagreement with some others, when you, when you can perceive their suffering, you know the source of their suffering, you know they're generating it, and you, you use this as maybe almost as an overly forceful tool to try to get them to realize the same thing you do in sort of spiritual um, I was curious as to when that or how that can be 
cultivated in a more wholesome and useful, skillful means. Okay, well, it, I'll give you an example. Um, my father was always bothered by the fact that I became Buddhist. And then there was a period when he went through a severe depression. So I went back to see him. And I just started asking him questions and trying to steer the conversation in a particular way. I never used the B word. You know? <laughs> but I always tried to engage him in a conversation to sort of help him come to these conclusions himself. And he snapped out of his depression in two days. So you use it in a non-confrontational way by trying to say, well, when they say something, but do you think that's really true? How about this? What if this were true? What would that mean? <coughs> Approach it as a mutual exploration. You had a question? Is this enlightenment or liberation from suffering in a Okay, view it as something that you can do. It's not there innately. You have you have the capacity to do it. Let's put it that way. But you also have the capacity not to do it. It's a choice. You've got the potential within you, and the, it's up to you to decide whether you want to activate that potential or not. That's 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 that would be the I think the best way to view it. Yes. Would you be open to talking more about how you talk to your dad about his, you know, what kind of questions you ask him or what helped to, that conversation to unfold? It was he was. He had a miserable marriage with my second mother, with my with his second wife, and she used certain things from the first marriage against him. And so he was afraid that you know, gosh, if this second marriage doesn't work out, then here I am failed with two marriages. And I said, well, do you think you're the only one responsible? That was the question that finally. Got there, but it took a while to get there to figure, to figure, one, to figure out what the issues were. Yes. Um, well, it's still ringing in my ears a little bit that, that thing you said about Mahanara. Mm -hmm. Not Mahanara, I get, but um, I live near some uh, Tibetan nuns that I've known for years. I've never seen almost any monastics work harder. Mm -hmm. The skillful means. Mm -hmm. I, it's stunning. And I've watched them develop over the years. It's not my practice. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I, I'm, 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 coming, I'm coming from like, man, I've never seen people work so hard for their own liberation. Yeah, well, they, they, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but then there's that element that there's somebody else who has to give the final. I guess I've never. I mean, you're, you're trying to embody different. The, 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 the different bodhisattvas or whatever, and have them come into you. And they have to. And there's a point where they have to choose that they're going to come in and sort of give you the final. Because there's something. That's, it, 
it's it's more in the in the older tradition you hear it more explicitly talked about they call the reversal of the basis that they provide you with the Buddha nature that you don't have yet. I'm asking about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something you adopt. It's something you adopt. It's a tool. I mean, what, what it's it's called transcendent because it leads to a transcendent experience. Now, the transcendent experience is something that you don't. It's not a it's not a tool towards something else. It's an end. But everything else along the everything else in the path is a means to the end. It's part of the strategy. Buddha never made that distinction. No, it's 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 in later. It's in it's in all the Buddhist traditions, but in later incarnations of them, like in the commentaries for the Theravada, they've got that absolute relative distinction. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, I feel like I mean the training that I had. I, don't know, I, I know they took stuff from Buddhism, but I feel like it was a weekend transformational training, and, I, and I, it was like a training. That Yeah, um, some of the things that are sold as absolute truth are, are actually not all that skillful. And you say, I've got to back up. I've got to learn how to, one, get my mind in a state through developing concentration where I can look at these things with a little bit more resilience. In other words, see them come up and not be emotionally shaken by them. So that I can actually understand, okay, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the things, what are the hooks that these things still have in me? And I can remove the hooks. And that's going to require good, strong concentration and a lot of equanimity as, as, as the things come up. And you ask for, okay, what in, what in that past experience still has a hook on my mind? Can I learn how to cut the hooks? But first you've got to get the mind in a good, solid state where it's, it's, not, it's not shaken by things easily. Okay, well, that, you, you want to get the two of them together. Because yeah. it's interesting in Buddhism that in Buddhist cultures, the word for heart and mind are the same word. 
there are two sides of one phenomenon. And if you're thinking apparatus says, okay, I'm not shaken by this, but there's something inside there that's not not in line with that. So you've got to try to get, okay, what, what's actually going on? What are the thoughts that are coming up when I think about those traumatic experiences? Okay, no, no you, you need some more concentration because you have to be able to access a sense of well-being in the present moment. Together? Well, I'm saying I'm saying the Buddhist is basically saying they're one. I mean, the the mind side is the way you talk to yourself. The heart side is kind of the will. And you know, your will has its reasons, and your reasons have their desires. And it's all part of the same process. Which is why we don't go around beating people over the head with our views. <laughs> like I was thinking specifically for me, like um, there would be times where, like maybe I don't like my job, for example, and I'm saying, "Oh, I'm having a tough time." But then every so often, I think to myself, "Oh well, I could be in a lot worse position. I must have done something like bad in a lifetime for this, so I must have done something pretty good now. It's not as bad as it could be." And so. When I'm playing with those thoughts, it, it allows me to appreciate something I do have. Mm -hmm. And so it, it allows me to act correctly. So mm -hmm. using the views in a way that gets to right action, just if that, if that connects there, and there's no problems with that, I'm going to block that in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's 9 o'clock. Time for monks to go home. Mandamayam dhamma kataya sadhu karam dadama